Take up your copy of the Word, if you have it with you, and turn with me there to Philippians chapter 4. I'll begin reading for context at verse 1 and read through verse 7, but our, the message this morning will come from verses 2 and 3. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, my beloved and long-far brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. I implore Euodia, And I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, as we gather once again before your Word, We ask and pray for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, that by His perfect wisdom we might hear with understanding, not hearing the voice of a mere man, but the words of life and the instruction of our Creator. This we ask in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. You may be seated. You will remember that Paul first touches on a pastoral call to unity in chapter 1, verse 27, where he writes these words, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In this earlier passage, he called the church to fulfill their responsibilities as citizens of heaven in a way worthy of the gospel, to stand firm, striving side by side in defense of the gospel as they face the enemy's onslaught through the, the opponents of the pure gospel, not caving in to cowardice or yielding to the flesh. Throughout that section, Paul repeatedly made the point that the key to victory is unity. He almost repeats himself in chapter 2, verse 2, Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And he went on in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2 to describe the mindset that fosters such unity in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interest of others, he writes. And presumably, he made these points so forcefully early in his letter because there were pressures within or surrounding the church that it exposed a, a, a fissure of self centeredness in the congregation at large. 
And as we look at these two short but illustrative verses this morning, I think it would be helpful to do so under, under five headings, and I'll even employ a little bit of alliteration this morning to help us all follow along. And so those five headings that I will use are the predicament, the people, the plea, the process, and the perspective. And so first we'll start with the predicament. One fissure, one stress that had developed in the church was between two women who occupied places of prominence in the congregation, namely Euodia and Syntyche. Now, if you pronounce Syntyche, Syntyche, or Syntyche, or however it is, just bear with me. I'm going to try to be consistent in using Syntyche. Paul tells us nothing about the occasion or the gravity of their disagreement and very little about the women or their role in the church, although I might hasten to add that the apostle's silence on this point has not hindered speculation on such questions through the years. But in order to, to understand the situation, we do need to exercise at least some measure of investigative inference. For example... It is probably safe to presume that the Philippian church as a whole was aware of the incidents or issues that had disrupted the women's relationship. Of course, then our curiosity leads us to wonder, did, did the problem begin with a, a personal affront or perhaps there was a disagreement over priorities or strategies in, in ministry? The simple fact is we, we simply don't know. The apostle devotes no space to resolving the issue itself, you know, even as he had when the Corinthian Christians disagreed over meat offered to idols. The church at Corinth had also seemed to be under stress because of the intense rivalries of competing parties there at Corinth, each swearing allegiance to a different leader. But in view of the gentleness of Paul's appeal to these sisters, it is hard to imagine that the friction at Philippi had yet reached the point that it was there at Corinth. Also, we can infer that the nature of the disagreement or tension between Euodia and Syntyche was not explicitly doctrinal in nature. What do I mean? If, for example, Euodia had been contending that salvation was by grace alone through faith alone, and Syntyche had been advocating for works salvation, for example, Paul probably would have taken the opportunity to point the church to the correct position. But he does no such thing. So the disagreement was likely that of a lesser matter, being aggravated by perhaps a lack of love or a lack of charity between these two sisters. Knowing that Paul was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can be glad for the lack of specificity, can we not? The disagreement between individuals, between families, and even between groups within the church are just all too common today, and they have been throughout history. And so, as we read about these two ladies, we are able to more easily discern the principles involved and take heed to the apostles' exhortation without having to to ask if the exhortation only applies to disagreements about carpet color or choice of musical instrumentation or whatever the case may be. 
So I find that helpful. And now let's move on to the second point, which is the people. The people. What do we know about Euodia and Syntyche and their particular roles in the congregation is another investigative question that we could ask. Again, we can't speak with confidence on this point. We, we do know that in the book of Acts, women received special mention in connection with Paul and Silas's planting of the churches in Macedonia. And so in Acts 16, we read that Lydia hosted Paul's missionary companions and the church's meeting in her home there at Philippi. Also, another Philippian woman, also the other Philippian women with whom Lydia would gather for prayer each Sabbath, may have joined her as a, as a part of the core group of the church at its planning. And in chapter 7, we see that prominent women responded to the gospel in Thessalonica and Berea. But we don't know if Euodia and Syntyche were among those groups, but we do have a picture of the women being actively involved at the beginning founding of the Philippian church. And it probably comes as no surprise to anyone here that egalitarian scholars interpret Paul's commendation of Euodia and Syntyche as those who have labored with him in the gospel to signify that Euodia and Syntyche held office as ministers of the word and were full members of Paul's missionary team. But construing their description this way would prove too much for Paul, then Paul's earlier application of the same wording to the whole congregation in chapter 1, verse 27, would mean that he expects every believer to fulfill the special pastoral office of teaching and oversight. Of course, we know that Paul consistently maintained that spiritually qualified men should be called to exercise the distinctive teaching and oversight authority as elders. And we read this in his first letter to Timothy and to Titus, yet... Yet Paul also encouraged all believers, all believers, to teach and admonish one another from the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord, we read in Colossians 3, verse 16. Believers of all sorts, as they scatter across the earth, carry and proclaim the gospel as they go. See, see Acts chapter 8 for that. The New Testament shows that Christ, the head of the church and source of His spiritual gifts, has designed His church in such a way that the distinctive authority and responsibility of leaders are complemented by the participation of all members as we serve each other. Leaders who hold a special office are not in competition in any way with all believers who hold a general office by virtue of their union with Christ. The Heidelberg Catechism puts it this way, I share in Christ's anointing to confess His name, to present myself to Him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Since Paul honors every member of Christ's body as providing service that all others need, Paul values Euodia and Syntyche as fellow combatants in defense of the gospel, even as he wants this for every follower of Christ. 
And apparently this, these women had enough visibility in the Philippian congregation that their falling out, whatever its cause or whatever its severity, was sufficiently public to warrant the apostles' direct mention in a letter to the whole church. Paul's robust understanding of the diverse gifts of the Spirit and the contribution of every member to the church, the body of Christ, enabled him to recognize these women as valued partners in the advance of the gospel, struggling and laboring at his side there. You will no doubt remember Paul knew firsthand the struggles that you can encounter in ministry, even even with a devoted brother in the Lord. When Paul first evangelized Philippi, his ministry partner was Silas. And their young assistant was Timothy. But the team could possibly have been quite different if Paul and his previous colleague Barnabas had found a way to agree on one important decision. Having proclaimed the gospel to the Gentiles in Asia Minor, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria. Both there and in the council of apostles and elders at Jerusalem, Paul and Barnabas stood shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, staunchly defending Gentile believers' freedom in Christ. Their oneness of mind and soul seemed unbreakable until they started to lay plans to revisit the churches they had planted previously and encounter what seemed to be a simple decision. On the first trip, Barnabas's cousin John Mark had served as the missionary's aide until, for reasons left unexplained in Acts, he abandoned them at Pamphylia. Barnabas wanted to give John Mark a second chance to prove himself, but Paul didn't think he could be relied upon. The disagreement became so sharp that their team was split down the middle. Barnabas took Mark to Cyprus while Paul recruited Silas and headed overland to the interior of Asia Minor where Timothy joined their group. And Luke, as we read the words, he narrates the dispute rather matter-of-factly, neither taking sides nor excusing this breach of the pattern said earlier in Acts, the pattern of the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And so in view of Barnabas's generous character, it's not surprising that he was willing to give Mark the benefit of the doubt, and mentor him further. His influence apparently bore fruit, so eventually Paul himself, writing from Rome, would endorse Mark in his ministry in Colossians 4, verse 10. Is Mark still with Paul as he writes to the Philippians? We don't know. But perhaps his presence, or at least this incident, is one factor prompting Paul to offer his appeal to Euodia and Syntyche. Which brings us to the third point, the plea. The plea. Having expressed his affection for the whole congregation, Paul broaches the subject of reconciliation and unity. First, he calls his sisters by name. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche. Now, to our contemporary ears, it may seem rude to name individuals in a public document and then, and then to correct them, perhaps compounding their embarrassment. Pastor Dennis Johnson recalls the story one time of leading a home Bible study on this text years ago in which he commented to the group, 
Can you imagine the looks on Euodia and Syntyche's faces when this sentence was read aloud in the congregation at Philippi? And he added that, to the context of the story there, that our children would sit on the family room floor with pencils and paper to keep them occupied as the adults discussed the scriptures. At the end of this particular session, my son handed me his work of art for the evening, and I could only smile. He could indeed imagine their faces. His sketch showed a small congregation seated in Mediterranean dress, and front and center were two women with their mouths agape and their eyes staring wide in shock. Well, that's a cute uh, picture to imagine there. Johnson goes on to confess that he had actually misled his son. Euodia and Syntyche would probably have felt some discomfort when their names and Paul's appeal were read aloud. But for the ancient writers, and for Paul in particular, to avoid naming these women would have been far more harsh. It would have meant placing them at arm's length. And, and as one scholar says, that he names them at all is evidence of friendship, since one of the marks of enmity in polemical letters is that the enemies are left unnamed, thus denigrating them by anonymity. Not only does Paul show them the respect of calling them by name, but he also honors them by conveying his writing using the words, I implore or I entreat. As Christ's apostle, Paul had the authority to issue commands. As he interceded for the runaway slave Onesimus, who became a newborn believer with Onesimus' master Philemon, Paul's friend and frequent host, he wrote these words, Therefore, though I might have been very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Philemon, verses 8 and 9. Here in Philemon, appeal represents the same Greek word that is reflected by implore in our text. Paul is not pulling rank and throwing his apostolic weight around. He is humbly asking respected co-laborers to behave in a manner that is in keeping with the gospel that they have all defended together. And he entreats each of them, repeating his appeal with each woman's name. So without taking sides or distributing blame, Paul issues equal appeals to Euodia and Syntyche. Let the friction cease. Let it go. And let the one mind that is yours in Christ prevail. This is the apostles' earnest plea. Paul's appeal to Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord echoes his earlier exhortation to the entire church in chapter 2, fulfill my joy being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Here Paul invites and urges Euodia and Syntyche not merely to decide what is right or even to come up with a compromise that is acceptable to both. His concern is that their disagreement over whatever it was and for however long it had persisted, his concern was that it had disrupted their ability to exhibit in their relationship to each other the unity that is theirs in the Lord. This is the priority. This, this is what really matters. This is the chief concern. 
Earlier when Paul asked the Philippians to be like-minded, he pointed to the church of Christ, who not only sets the standard for our selfless servanthood, but also transforms our minds and our motives by His Spirit. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he wrote. Now again, Paul reminds these sisters who have contended for the gospel with him, shoulder to shoulder, that they are together and that they are in union with Christ in the Lord. And that brings us to our fourth point, the process. The process. When your relationship with a Christian brother or sister hits an impasse, when you cannot resolve a disagreement, when it is a strain even to be in the same room with him or her, at that moment, you both need to pause and take heart to heart Paul's gentle reminder to Euodia and Syntyche that there may need to be a third person involved. Paul's final request is to another church leader whom he calls and refers to as true companion or genuine yoke fellow as it is rendered in some translations. The petition is simply that this leader help Euodia and Syntyche work toward reconciliation. Paul trusted this colleague to have the wisdom and to discern the sort of help these sisters needed in order to restore their oneness of mind. Perhaps the disagreement had become so sharp that they had stopped hearing one another, each defensively maintaining her own argument rather than listening to the other. Perhaps the perspective of a third party could bring clarity and balance to the one-sided perception of one or both of them. And perhaps the involvement of Paul's true companion would alert them to the sobering truth that their dispute, whatever its origin was adversely affecting the wider congregation. And so Paul now works out in a very practical way the implications of his understanding of the church as the body of Christ, in which every member grieves with another member that suffers. The disunity between these two Christian women has so adversely affected others that it must be named publicly in Paul's tender letter to the congregation. So now others are called to pitch in to help these sisters make peace and with one another. And this is not, we need to know, Euodia and Syntyche's private problem to which others can turn a blind eye. Their need calls for the aid of the family of God. It calls for a God-ordained process of helping one another pursue peace and unity. The identity of the true companion whom Paul enlists to assist the women's reconciliation is unknown to us, though it was no doubt evident to the Philippians. Timothy and Epaphroditus have been nominated by some, some commentators, though since they are still with Paul in Rome as he writes, it seems strange that he would address either of them in the epistle itself and, and in such a cryptic manner. Silas and Luke, each of whom spent time in Philippi, have been suggested as well, but simply, once again, we do not know. Since the Philippian church had several bishops and deacons, as we see in chapter 1, verse 1, maybe one of those stood out as having worked closely with Paul. As Paul writes to Timothy in one of his pastoral epistles, 
among the circle of elders who ruled well, some were called to especially labor in word and doctrine. Perhaps Paul's true companion was someone with a particular gift of ruling. Or perhaps Paul's true companion was one of the overseers whose primary role was to teach the word. His partnership with Paul in plowing and planting the word for a gospel harvest like a, like a pair of oxen yoked together was all that was needed to identify him as the minister best suited to aid the reconciliation process for these two sisters in Christ. But more important than our guessing the identity of the true companion, however, is our understanding the point of Paul's emphasis on togetherness that should characterize believers. Euodia and Sensky have stood together with Paul for the gospel. The brother who must help them has pulled the plow, so to speak, alongside the apostle, and they belong to a greater company of fellow workers, including Clement and others, who also do the work of ministry within the church by promoting unity and reconciliation. And this is what we truly need to understand from this text. And finally, Paul turns to our fifth point, the perspective. The perspective. This company of co-workers has been gathered not by the courage or character of its members, but by God's grace. It is all of grace. That's the glue of their unity, so to speak, which makes reconciliation between Euodia and Syntyche so imperative. It is the mercy that God has shown them in the gift of His Son. The gospel has taken root, you see, in and it has borne fruit in their lives because the living God in His sovereign grace wrote their names in the book of life even before He created the universe. This is the perspective. This is the true and heavenly perspective that Paul now brings into view. This vivid image of the book of life is the note to which Paul ends his appeal to his sisters appeal for oneness of mind and heart through the, the assistance of others in the family of God. The theme of God's book in which he has written the names of those whom he sovereignly chose to enjoy eternal life is a very old theme. At Mount Sinai, Moses mentioned God's book as he pleaded with the Lord to forgive idolat idolatrous Israel, even as we meditated upon that text from Exodus 32 this morning. Isaiah described Israel's survivors as those who have been written among the living in Jerusalem, as we read earlier in our Old Testament passage from Isaiah 4. The psalmist declared that when the Lord registers the peoples, He will inscribe on even the names of Gentiles from the surrounding nations, Egypt and Babylon, Philistia, Tyre, and Ethiopia, as having been born in Zion as citizens of God's city. Psalm 87. Daniel foresaw the rescue and resurrection of everyone who is found written in the book at the end of time, Daniel 12. When 72 disciples returned to Jesus, rejoicing over the power of His name to dispel the forces of darkness, their Lord directed them to rejoice because your names are written in heaven, Luke chapter 10. And John's revelation on Patmos revealed that those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be vindicated at the last judgment. 
And Paul earlier reminded us that our citizenship is in heaven and that we await a returning Savior and Lord from, the, from that celestial city that defines our identity. And now he impresses on Euodia and Syntyche, on Paul's true companion, whoever that may be, on Clement and other fellow workers, and on the whole family of God there at Philippi, the amazing truth that God himself has enrolled each of us who trust Jesus personally and by name in his heavenly Zion's registry of citizens. That is an amazing thought to try to wrap our minds around. The source of our enrollment, our union with Christ, is the unfathomable love of the Father. It is the basis, its basis is the blood of the Lamb shed for our forgiveness and for our cleansing. The life-giving presence of God's Spirit powerfully implements, powerfully implements God's electing grace in our lives. In one sense, as Paul told Timothy, only the Lord knows those who are His infallibly. Yet the fruit that the Spirit bore in believers' lives gave Paul a glimpse of God's will and his choice. As Paul wrote to the Christians in Thessalonica, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And as we consider the contemporary importance of this teaching, namely that our names are written in the book of life by virtue of our union with Christ, I think it's, it's tremendously important for us to grasp this new God-given identity. We're living in a time when it's difficult to read a headline or, or hear a news report that doesn't include identity in some shape or form. This is an age of profound identity crisis, especially in the Western world. And so knowing who you really are is a wonderful blessing. If you are a believer, you are in Christ. And that is your identity. You are no longer a citizen of the kingdom where sin reigns both over you and in you. You are a member of a new kingdom. You have a new family, a new citizenship, a new identity altogether, and your name is written in the book of life. You belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the perspective that matters more than anything else. And so in our text this morning, Paul names names. Euodia, Syntyche, Clement affirming confidently that their names are also written in the Lamb's book of life. The divine grace that wrote our names on the electing heart of God from before the foundation of the world infinitely overshadows any and every interpersonal friction that threatens to divide us. It trumps every trivial disagreement and it destroys even the deep and profoundly painful wounds that separate us. And because we are one in the Lord, by His mercy and by His grace, we can and we must stand together. Let's pray. 
Our good and gracious Father, we offer to you once again our thankful hearts for your word of truth. We ask that as we meditate upon your word and even the principles and applications given in this message, that you would sovereignly plant them in our hearts, winnowing all the chaff and implanting the true seed of your word, that in due season, according to your will, good fruit would be brought forth. We pray for the grace of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. For all of these to abound and that you would surround us with faithful workers and yoke fellows to exhort and treat and even command us when we fall short because we are those whose names have been written in the book of life. And this we ask for the glory of our God, for the beauty of the gospel, and for the advancement of your kingdom. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.